Good morning. Welcome to a beautiful day God has given us. Where else would you rather be? I know, on the beach somewhere, but uh, we're here, and this is, uh, this is the place that God has called us to this morning, and I'm glad to be able to share with you. Uh, George and Cynthia are in Swift Current, Saskatchewan, helping their son Josiah and his wife pack up. They've been associate pastor at the Church of the Open Bible in Swift Current for about three years, and they are now moving to Ontario, to Oakville area, to pastor a church. Uh, this very sudden uh, news to them, it happened very quickly. And interestingly, the church in Swift Current is where my, son, my son-in-law, Matt, uh, was mentored by the pastor for a number of years, and our daughter Carla was there. And so we know the pastor very well, Rob Cochran. This, it's quite an adjustment for them as a church because this is a, quite a surprise to them. Our youth... There's 30 people on their way back from uh, the south, right? They've been at the Snowbird Camp, so pray for them as they make their way back. I don't think they're back yet. It's, it's an 18-hour trip. And remember to pray for Gordon and Muriel as they share in the passing of his mother. It's bookends today, right? Death and birth with uh, the little man in the DeWitt family who's come into this world. And that is life. Today I heard on the news that there are four to six of the, of the uh, little Thai soccer team boys in the, in, the, in the cave have been rescued. So they're, that's good news. They're slowly trying to get them out. All the eyes of the world are upon them. So uh, that's something to pray about as, as you're thinking of those things. Well, that was a little bit of a kind of a wandering. And I have a little commercial and for the last nine years, I've been involved with an organization in Cambridge called the Ontario Christian Gleaners. Uh, this is a Christian organization. And uh, we get our name from the, from the book of Leviticus. And what we do is we take unused fresh vegetables and we clean them and run them through a dicer and then through a dehydrator. And then we package them in three pound packages of a dried vegetable mix that initially is designed for soup. This bag will serve 100 servings of soup and it's all from products that would have been thrown out or fed to animals or whatever. Uh, mainly it's vegetables um, and sometimes we do yams just in one package. We also do apples and pears. You're welcome to look at this. And the particular reason I'm mentioning that is that we get our name from the Old Testament. And on the screen, I believe you have uh, this words from Leviticus. And so this was the social system of the day. This was the food ba uh, bank of the day. And it was instituted by God through Moses. So it was a law. It was enacted as a Mosaic law that when they were harvesting, uh, it was all done by hand, you can appreciate. So they're with a scythe cutting off the grain and they bundle it into sheaves and then they, they carry it and, and they'll thresh it. And when they're, uh, so when they're doing that, there's always strips of, or pieces of grain that fall by the wayside. And so the, the law was, you leave that for the people who are poor, who are strangers in the land, uh, foreigners. You do the same when you're picking your grapevines and your fruit trees. You don't pick it clean. You leave some for those who can come along uh, at, 
with uh, the freedom to do that, and that's how they survive, by being able to glean. And this painting in the next picture is quite a famous painting. It depicts the women in the, in the fields of harvest field picking up handfuls of, uh, of grain and while the harvesters are, are busy there as well. So it would be a very busy field or an orchard. You would, you would have a lot of people, a lot of them were women, and they would come along and they would glean things just to make a, to make a living. Well, today, we're going to see how God used this custom in the life of Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi, to survive. And it's well demonstrated in this, in this book of Ruth that we're looking at today. So in the book of Ruth, which if you're looking for it, it's right after Joshua and Judges. And it's a very short book, so uh, please have your finger in that if you have your Bible with you. Uh, what is the real story in the book of Ruth? Some of you may have read it and studied it. Uh, others may not. Why is it in the Bible? Because there's a purpose for every book that's in the Bible. Well, the book of Ruth is part of God's story that began way back in the Garden of Eden. When God said, I'm going to bring a rescuer into the world who will undo what Satan has done. He, he messed things up, uh, and, and people, we have paid the consequences of that. It meant that we have be, become sinners before God. So God is at work in the lives of real people in the book of Ruth, with real names in his plan of bringing the Messiah, the Savior, into the world. It's a story about people being positioned in just the right place at the right time for God's greater purposes, the big purpose for what he's doing in history and in the world. So God speaks to us through the book of Ruth. It certainly could be looked at as a, a nice love story, but it's really... That's just one angle at it. But as we look at the narrative, it helps us to understand something about God's story in your life and my life. Because God is working in your life. He has a big story, but you also have a story, and it's part of his ultimate story that we'll see today. So life puts us in places and positions where we serve God's purposes. So the operative word today, if you, if you want a, a reference point to remember what we talked about, it's the word position or being positioned. You take that home and, and if you say, what did he speak about today? Well, it was about being positioned and that will help you to, to remember what's happening in the book of Ruth. So I invite you through the eyes of faith and in the spirit of the book of Ruth to see your story in God's greater story. I'm going to read the first eight verses and invite you to stand and, and then we'll have prayer. Ruth 1, 1 to 8. In the days when the judges ruled, that is, before there was a king, there was a famine in the land. And a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name, Naomi, 
And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. The Jews follow their history through genealogy. That's why names are so important. And your name is important in God's story as well. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion, the sons, died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people in Judah by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown your, to, your, uh, to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Our Father in heaven, we stand before you today as your people, thankful that you know each of us and you know each of us by name. And we're part of your great story. Thank you for what you're doing in each of our lives. Speak to us through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. It's important to see the context and, and really uh, to see the connection. The previous book ends, the book of Judges, gives a dateline of the history of what time this was in the life of uh, the Jewish people. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. It's like in those days, there were no parents in the home and the kids did whatever they wanted. It is even greater than that. So there was lack of leadership in the land. In the days when the judges ruled, that's the context. The geographical setting is that Israel, they're in Israel, and now we're going to look at, at Moab. And we have a, a slide here that gives a map. Uh, Moab is current day Jordan, if you're trying to piece together geographies. So we're thinking of those two countries, specifically Bethlehem near Jerusalem, and then in Moab. So that's, that's a geographical setting. The, the lead characters in the story are Elimelech and his wife Naomi. They were from the tribe of Judah, so they were from that line of Messiah. And the other leading person is this young lady who became a widow with them. So the storyline is about a family's decision and the outcomes and the surprising twists and turns that that, take, that took, and they turn out to fit into God's storyline and history. It's a great, uh, a great story of how you see God positioning people. And all of us have a storyline in our life, and sometimes it doesn't make sense to us. You know, it's, 
it's, if you're following the Grand River, it twists and turns and it, you know, it, it goes all over the place. If you're up in an airplane, you would see it make sense because it's eventually going to get into Lake Erie. And life is like that. There are many surprises. There are many outcomes. And sometimes we're blindsided, sometimes we're disappointed, sometimes we're really excited, depending on what happens to us. But we can choose to see God in the picture. That's what faith is all about. We walk by faith, not by sight. And what we can do is we can choose, this is a choice of faith, we can choose to see God in the picture and see how we're positioned for his purposes. This is the biblical perspective that helps us to trust God with all the social upheavals in history. There's wars all over. Wars have been happening for years, for centuries. And through wars and other disasters, people are repositioned, right? They, they, they have to flee where they are. They're refugees. Or they have to go to another country to survive. And that's been happening throughout the human history. Everything that happens has a way of positioning people in different locations, in locations they would not have thought of. So we want to look at this book of Ruth through fresh eyes. Now, if you know about the book, I want you to pretend you haven't read it before. Because that's the best way to come to Scripture. Imagine that you're looking at it for the first time and read it fresh. That's what we want to do this morning, look at it freshly. Well, in the first places, this next map tells us about the migration that, uh, that the family took. And I understand they would probably have taken the northern route to go up around the Dead Sea because the southern route was a, was a, a disaster geographically. It was just hard to navigate. And so this is, this is what's happening. And, and Ruth is going to be positioned to live in Israel. So in chapter 1... It's all about Ruth uh, being relocated in the land of, uh, of Naomi. So that next slide is what we're going to go with. So it's about a 30-mile journey, I understand. And these two women go back, and you know the story. I'm not going to do all the, the details of it, but when the... When the uh, Husbands all die. Naomi wants to return home because the uh, famine is over. And one daughter-in-law chooses to stay. Ruth says, no, I'm going to go with you. I'm gonna, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God, and so on. And Naomi's family had these messianic connections. And if you look at the prophecy of, of uh, Micah, he says... And if you take this, when Jesus was born and the king wanted to know where would the Messiah come from, remember when they asked, well, the, the studies all took them back to Micah 5.2 and they said, out of Bethlehem, Ephrathah, in the little town of Bethlehem, will come forth the ruler who has been of old. So there was this messianic connection in the land of Judah. So why did they leave their inheritance in Judah? Bethlehem is called the house of bread. Uh, they chose to to go because of the famine, self-preservation. Did other families go? Those are questions I'd like to, to know. Were they the only family that left? Were there others that went with them? If they were the only family, why did they go if the others stayed? And why was it this family particularly 
that we have in this story. And why go to Moab? It's, it's quite a journey. Why go there? You have to cross the Jordan River, etc. Interestingly, Israel and Moab shared a common great-grandfather, Terah. And Terah had a son named Abraham. And Abraham had a nephew named Lot. And so there's a connection there. But Moab's history was, at this time, it was a flourishing kingdom east of the Dead Sea. And during the time of the judges, it wasn't a pretty time between the two countries. Uh, the, the Moabites had constantly oppressed the, the Israelites for 18 years until finally the, the king of Moab was assassinated by one of the judges of Israel. So it's kind of a messy story, but that's, that's life. So, but at this time, we understand that Moab and Israel were in a time of peace. And so that would make sense that they would feel safe to go on that journey back and forth. But why did this family make what seems to be, at first, a bad or a wrong decision? And it seemed like they paid for it. And Naomi, as we read in verse 19 of chapter 1, she's coming back now. They're back in Bethlehem. The two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? It's been over 10 years. Don't call me Naomi. Naomi means pleasant, she told them. Call me Mara, which means bitterness, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me pleasant? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Can you appreciate the questions going on in her mind after all this and all those years in Moab? Why did we ever leave our homeland in the first place? Why did we give up our property that we had in our family line here in Bethlehem? Why did my husband die so soon? Why did, my, why did I experience all this grief? Why did my sons marry Moabite women? They weren't Jewish women. Now, in the day, uh, Moabite men were allowed, or Moabite men were allowed to, um, not were allowed to, were not allowed to marry Jewish women, but the Moabite women were apparently allowed to convert and marry an Israelite man. She would say, "Well, why did my, why did both of my sons die so early? They couldn't have been married only a few years." And so she's saying, "I'm experiencing God's displeasure. God is punishing me. He's disciplining me." And she didn't feel good about the choices that had made. And I think about Ruth, too. She's, she has all these things going through her mind. And on that walk home with Naomi for that 30 miles back to a foreign land now for her, maybe she was asking, why did I marry someone from another people in another country? Because now I'm going back to a place that I have no relatives. Why did my husband die so young? We didn't have any children. Is this the right decision? You know, every step going back, could she be thinking, is this the right decision to migrate to Israel and, and go with my mother-in-law, leave all my people behind? Well, you and I have had to wrestle, and we do have to wrestle, and we will wrestle in life with similar questions. There are reverses that come in our life. 
there are disappointments. And we ask, why did this happen to me? Is God upset with me? Am I out of the will of God? Why did I move? Why did we move from where we were living? If those of you who are at my wife's funeral may remember my son talking about his feelings when at age 10, we announced to him that we were going to move from Saskatchewan to Ontario and how he said I was angry. And he said, um, but, but my mom came into the room and, and, and laid with me and she said, it's hard for me too, but God has a plan. You may be second-guessing yourself this morning. I don't know what that may be about. I have no idea. You may be feeling that God is not pleased with you. Things have gone wrong. So I want to parallel this with a story of a family. They lived in Northern Ireland in the mid-1800s. Uh, there was a great hunger famine. It was a potato blight that, that destroyed the potatoes, and a lot of people lived on that. Uh, two-thirds, um, two-thirds, or two-fifths of the people in Ireland, Northern Ireland, depended on potatoes for, for eating. It was, it was a very poor time. And so during this famine, which happened between 1845 and 1849, but one million, one million people died. And another million immigrated from Ireland. And it reduced the population by 20 to 25%. That's a mass movement of people. Thomas and Anne were one of those families that went to New York City where many of the, the Irish people went around 1860. And a stranger, of course they were new to the country, this stranger came along, was very friendly to them, and they had, they had a, a son and a daughter. They were young children. And so this daughter was, I'm not sure how old she was, a young girl. So this man said, oh, can I take her for ice cream? And of course, being naive in a foreign country, they were trusting. They never saw her again. They must have had many questions. Why did we ever leave our country? Well, in the book of Ruth, see how God used the famine. Now, be careful, I'm not saying God causes famines. Remember that, we have to keep our perspective right. But God used the famine and, it, and its completion to bring Naomi and Ruth to Bethlehem. And that's where Naomi's family roots were. And God used this, this people movement to position Ruth in the community of life with the people of God. She would not have gone there otherwise. But God intended her to be there. So now, in chapter 2, she's positioned to meet a key relative through Naomi. And this is where they survive by, by gleaning in the field. So they arrive in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest, the end of chapter 1, just notice this is a very key uh, calendar date. They returned, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. 
That tells us something. It tells us the time of year. It tells us what was going on in the life of the people. The barley harvest in Palestine was the first grain harvest. Wheat would come later. It was in the early spring. The, the barley, <coughs> excuse me, was sown after the autumn rains in the month of October, and the harvest was in the month of April. So it was a time of special joy because there's very interestingly, it says they came to Bethlehem on the day, literally, that the barley harvest began. Why is that significant? Because in the book of Leviticus, it tells us the first thing they did before they did anything else with the barley, before they harvested and used it for themselves, they took a sheaf of the barley stalks and took it into the temple, or to the tabernacle, as a sheaf offering to the Lord. It was a very celebrative time. This was around the time of Passover, as part of the first fruits of the barley harvest at, at the Passover. And it was not lawful to begin harvest until, you, until they did that special thing. And the Jewish harvest laws allowed them to gather harvest grain that was left behind by the reapers. So we move into chapter 2, verse 2. Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. Interestingly, the timing of their arrival is just the point when now they can begin getting something to eat. It's perfect timing. And it was provided for those with, with little or no income. So as Deuteronomy says, or Leviticus says, leave the leftovers the droppings, leave them for the poor and the alien. So Naomi and Ruth fit that picture very well. So Ruth's gleaning work connected her with an important relative, verse 3. As it turned out, she found herself working in the field of Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. And Boaz arrived about that time from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters, the Lord be with you, the Lord bless you, they called back. Boaz asked the foreman of his harvest, whose young woman is that? He said, she's the Moabitess who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She went into the field and has worked steadily this, from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz goes to her and says, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field. And don't go away from here. Stay here with my servants. Watch this field where the men are harvesting and follow along with the girls. I've told the men not to touch you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. And at this, she bowed down with her face to the ground and she exclaimed, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me a foreigner? And Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland, and came to live with people you did not know before. Boy, news travels fast, doesn't it? May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So she's gleaning in the field. Now, this is an important person. 
So if we go down to verse 17 of chapter 2, so Ruth gleaned in the field until evening, then she threshed the barley she had gathered and it amounted to about a nipa, 22 liters. She carried it back to town and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. It was obviously more than usual. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten what Boaz had given to her earlier. Her mother said, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother, because Ruth had no idea who this guy was, uh, about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz. And Naomi's mouth drops open. And she says, the Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing us his kindness to the living and the dead. That man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen, redeemers. And this is a, a very key connection here in the book. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish the harvesting all my grains. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with his girls because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the servant girls of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvest were finished and she lived with her mother-in-law. So that represents a number of weeks for that harvest time to be taking place. A kinsman redeemer. Now that's totally foreign to us. And we'll see more about this. But a kinsman redeemer was a close relative in the same clan and who was qualified on the pecking order and who had, would have the wherewithal materially to be able to come along and help someone who's in a destitute position. And, and that was a, a common practice that God had put in place. The Mosaic law, again the law of Moses, provided for a next of kin, a kinsman redeemer, to act on behalf of a relative who had fallen into hard times. Even buying back the land that they had forfeited, perhaps they had said, well, I can't afford to live for this, uh, you know, on this land, but I'll rent it out to you, I'll sort of serve you, and they kind of gave up the, the ownership of it for that time. So here's what it says in Leviticus. The land must not be sold permanently, because the land is mine and you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. Throughout the land that you hold as a possession, you must provide for the redemption of the land. If one of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and sells some of their property, their nearest relative is to come and redeem what they have sold. That's Leviticus 25, 23 to 25. So now Ruth is in the right field at the right time for God's purposes to unfold. And they do. And God's purposes in time when we allow ourselves to see things develop, we, we, can, we can see it and it empowers us when we trust God with things to believe and be confident that he's at work. And he's working on our plans even when things are not clear. The Bible says in Hebrews 11, Abraham was called to go into a land he, he didn't know about. It was a foreign land. It was about 900 kilometers Took him weeks to go there. And he, the Bible says he went out not knowing where he was going. Had no idea what the land would be like. That was faith. And we can choose to say, for now, at this time, Sunday morning, on July the 8th, 2018, 
we can choose to say that for now, we are in the right place, you and I, each of us. I don't mean sitting in the pews. We're in the right place in our life for God's greater purposes. I hope you will take that with you. So Thomas and Anne, this Irish couple that left uh, Northern Ireland, uh, eventually left New York City, and they moved to Bracebridge in about 1873. So now they were positioned in central Ontario. In, in about 10 years after they settled Ontario, they had a son named David. And so Ruth, as we look at, and I'm, I'll finish the story, but Ruth was now positioned to be in the right place to be able to make a cultural appeal. So chapter 3 is about request for a redeemer. She's now positioned to appeal to a kinsman redeemer. So Naomi decides to exercise her kinsman's rights, chapter 3. Once, one day, so time had gone by, one day Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, should I not try to find a home for you where you will be left provided for? Is not Boaz, with whose servant girls you have been, a kinsman of ours? Tonight he will be in winnowing barley on the threshing floor. So she decides to exercise their kinsman rights. She had that kinsman right. Ruth got in on that because she now was a, a widow from their son, from Naomi's son. So what we're looking at now is a strange practice for us, but it was the natural, it was the norm in Israel. It was called a Levite marriage. Uh, Levi means a husband's brother. So it's a marriage to a husband's brother. And, and according to this law, if a man in Israel, again, this is a Mosaic law, if a man in Israel died without leaving his wife a son, it was the duty, it was his God-given duty uh, the, near, the deceased man's nearest relative to marry his dead brother's wife and raise a son for her in, in his brother's name. And according to Deuteronomy 25, 5-6, if brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. Well, that's, that was God's plan, and that's how it worked. And that's what we're dealing with here. It's all above board. So what Ruth does is offers herself to Boaz for a Levite marriage. So reading on in verse 3 of chapter 3. So Naomi says... Uh, Wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. Go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is living. Then go in and cover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. Ruth said, I will do that. So she went down to the threshing floor and, told, and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the end of the grain pile. So this is nighttime now. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down in the middle of the night. The man, something startled the man, and he turned and discovered a woman lying at his feet. Who are you, he asked. 
I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are my kinsman redeemer. Again, we're dealing with customs and cultural things that are above board. It's, it's very, a normal thing that would happen. Spread your skirt over me. This was to do that in the East, to do that, to spread the skirt, of that is the, the part of the, of the coat that a person would wear, the, the long gowns, it was a symbolic action denoting protection. It was, very, it, was, it was symbolic, just as we took the bread and juice this morning. A symbolic act represented something beyond just the bread and the juice. And, and even we understand, even in the East today, to say anyone uh, it, that puts his skirt over a woman is synonymous with saying that he, is married, he has married her. And all the marriages in the modern Jews and Hindus... One of the ceremony parts is for the bridegroom to put a part of his garment over his bride. It's symbolic that he's taking her under his protection. So this is what's happening. So she is now with the right man to offer herself in marriage in the purpose of God. Now they're taking a risk. You know, that's kind of risky. Right, women? <laughs> you could be rejected. And, but it was a step of faith because it was a risk because as we read on, there was someone else who stood in the way. There was a nearer kinsman that stood in the way, and we'll see that in a moment. We walk by faith, not by sight. The Christian life, to follow Christ, is a daily walk of faith about what's happening in our life, what's happening in people's lives. It, it was for our family to leave Saskatchewan in 1979 and to relocate to pastor a church in Paris that had been reduced to 20 people was a step of faith. There were no assurances. It was risky, but that was by faith. But God is worthy of our trust, and he will never lead us or do us wrong. So now back to the Irish couple. Uh, this son, Thomas, uh, or rather Thomas and Anne, uh, their son met another Irish lady in about 1900 in Stainer, Ontario. So David, their son, married Alice, and they eventually moved west uh, in Western Canada uh, and farmed in Western Canada. And now they were positioned in actually central Manitoba, where they raised a large family. People movements. There's purpose, there's rationale in God's big picture. So Ruth is now positioned to become a key player in God's greater purpose as she waits for the Lord to clear the way for their marriage. So at the end of chapter 3, Ruth says, and Naomi says, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Chapter 4, Ruth is now positioned, she's now placed to be part of the Messiah line, as we will see at the end of chapter 4. So Boaz initiates the process, so in chapter 3, verse 18, he, uh, um, 
chapter 4, rather, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there. When the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned, the, the one who was ahead of him in the line of being the redeemer, uh, when he came along, Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he's talking to his cousin or his uncle or whatever. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took 10 of the elders of the town and said, sit here. So what he's doing here, he's saying, okay, relative, <clears throat> Naomi is selling this land that was forfeited because her husband died. <clears throat> she doesn't have a son. So she's selling it. And because you have first, I'm second, you have first choice, I'm offering it to you today, you can buy it. He said, I'll buy it. And then Boaz pulls out the trump card and he says, well, in the day that you buy it, you have to take Ruth as your wife to raise a son for the, for the dead men in, her li in their life so they will have a place in Israel. Verse 6, at this the kinsman redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. So the deal is made publicly here. So he declares himself to be the redeemer. And so they get married. Uh, just move on now. To, we're going to quickly move on to the end. Chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Then he went to her. She, and the Lord enabled her to conceive. She gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord this day who has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and cared for him. The woman living there, women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This was not just a son. This was the son that would extend the line of the tribe of Judah leading to King David. And reading the rest of the chapter, here's the, here's the genealogy. <clears throat> uh, there's ten generations here, and there's a reason for that. But in verse 21, Solomon, the father of Boaz, Boaz, the father of Obed, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. And Ruth's name appears in the book of Matthew in the genealogy of Jesus. A foreigner, an outsider, but God had purposes. Maybe it don't make sense to us, but in his purposes, this was the case. And Mary came back with a taste of bitterness, but now she has pleasantness in her life. And Ruth is an example, a picture, a living demonstration of how God can change a life and take it in the direction that he wants, and we can even say he's foreordained. And we can see God working out his plan in Ruth's life, just as he's doing in your life and my life. Even though she came from a pagan background in Moab, she met the God of Israel. She became a living testimony to him. And one of the few women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So hindsight is twenty twenty, right? We have the benefit, and actually if you read the end of Ruth first, it's like it makes sense out of it all. But you, 
it's not until you get to the end that you see this. So it's important for us to read history backwards. That is, start with your life today and go back in your family tree. And begin with God's ultimate plan and then follow that back and see how people in your family tree have been positioned so that you are who you are and where you are today. That's, so there's, a, there's two pictures. This is a macro picture that Jesus Christ was bringing a Messiah into the world, started in the Garden of Eden, came through the line of Judah, through Boaz and Ruth, and on through until Jesus Christ was born. That was the big story in the book of Ruth. That is the big story in the book of Ruth. The small story is that God was using individuals and placing them in positions where they'd be in the right place at the right time for his purpose. And that's the real story in our life. God's big story is today he's building his church. He's he's putting his hand on individuals and calling them to to himself to become, through faith in Jesus, part of the church, the, the body of Christ. The small story, the micro story is that he's taking each of us and he's shaping us into the image of Christ, conforming us to the image of his son, and using all those things that happen in our life to press us more and more into that mold. So David and Alice, the Irish couple who moved to Manitoba, had a large family. And one of their sons, Perry, married a woman from Saskatchewan. And I'm their firstborn. When you look at your story, your story is very important in God's big story. But you have a story. You are a story. And I don't, you know, we have some black marks in our family tree too. And you will too if you look back far enough or, or be willing to look at it. That's not the point. God positions us. He gets us into this life. And there are some questions I have about how that happens in some cases. But we want to look at the big picture. Because this final slide reminds us that God is working in your life and is working in my life to carry out his purposes. We're just about finished. So God positioned my wife and I to meet at a Bible school in Saskatchewan. She was living in the Okanagan Valley. I was living in Manitoba. She just about missed me because she arrived to take her first year and my last year at Bible school. And then we ministered in two churches in Saskatchewan before moving to Paris in 1979 where we we served God for 29 years. The result, Elva and I have been positioned by God to be with you for the last nine years to worship and serve together. And the story is still going on. You have a story. I'd encourage you to to think about that, reflect on your story, do some historical research. And look at your own story through the lens of seeing God's story in your life. Because life events 
our raw material for God in our lives. We know that everything works for God's good to those who are, love him and are called according to his purpose, that we might be what? Conformed to the image of his son. So there may be many little Jesuses. So that he might be the firstborn among many children, right? Brothers and sisters. So whatever has been going on in your life, whatever will be going on in your life, all those things have a way of somehow God pushing us in his direction, forcing us on him, helping, causing us to trust him. So today, choose to trust God and worship him and embrace everything that has come into your life and that will come into your life. Let's pray together. And I encourage you in this moment of reflection to confess your faith in God and his purposes. Just tell him you believe that he has a purpose and you trust that. And submit to him and commit yourself to him. Oh Lord, we thank you that you're trustworthy. And we bow to you this morning in, in submission and acceptance and full confidence in you and your purposes. We pray that you give us courage and hope and confidence for your name's sake. Amen.